Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Hey, it's Matt, and I'm here in the studio with Austin, and we're excited to bring you another business episode of The Science of Success. We just launched season two of our business episodes. If you want to learn more about what these are and why we're doing them, Be sure to check out the season two teaser that we recently released. And with that, Austin, tell us a little bit about how these episodes are different than a traditional Science of Success episode. Yeah. So it's important to know that you're still going to get all the great content you've come to know and love from the Science of Success every Thursday. These are bonus episodes with added value, specifically centered around business. We've interviewed some true titans of business in multiple industries from multiple walks of life. And what we're going to focus on are the habits, routines, and mindsets that made them the successful titans they are today. That said, these are lessons, routines, stories, best practices that anyone can learn from and apply to their life. You don't have to be a business owner. You can be an employee. You can be a student. Or you can, of course, be a business owner. But come check them out. You're going to come away with a ton of valuable takeaways. But we do have a bit of a business focus on these specific business episodes in Season 2. With that, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we get a behind-the-scenes peek at what it truly takes to rapidly scale a massive company, learning the inside lesson that enabled our guest to build his telecom startup from zero to $25 million in recurring revenue in 18 months with our guest, Oliver Schmalholz. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. 
In our previous episode, we brought on leadership expert Alon Hunkins to finally crack the code on what truly makes a leader great and to show you exactly how to apply those lessons to your own life. Now for our interview with Oliver. Oliver Schmelholtz is the co-founder and CEO of News Quantified, and for the past 15 years, Oliver has successfully built four startup companies, raised over $50 million in venture capital, and built a U.S. equities trading firm to more than a billion in trading volume in three years. When the European telco market deregulated, he signed the first interconnection agreement in the country of Austria, which led to the acquisition by a Fortune Global 100 company in record time. Oliver, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks a lot, Matt, for having me on the show. Well, we're so excited to have you on here today. You have such a fascinating background and an incredible story. And I'd love to start out with sharing with the listeners a little bit about your business journey and how it got started. Absolutely. Happy to tell you more about how it started and all about the Lessons I learned and what works and what didn't, and the shortcuts to get to the results. So I've been an entrepreneur since my early 20s. So I've been through a lot of startups, some more successful than others. And the first one that I hit pretty big was back in the late 90s in the telecom industry. The U.S. telecoms market was already regulated at that time I was living in Europe, and Europe was about to open up back in 98. And it's, you know, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity with a market opening up, a monopoly will only be removed once the market is open and there's competition. Things typically don't get back to too much uh, regulations. So when I heard about that and had no idea about the telecoms industry, I knew I had to be part of that as an entrepreneur. And originally, I'm from Germany. So that's where all the big guys were paying their attention to on the German market and on the French market with the two biggest geographic areas that were supposed to open up. And so I figured maybe, you know, the low hanging fruit is in one of the second tier markets. And since German is spoken in two other countries in Austria and uh, Switzerland, I looked at those and Austria looked like a very attractive choice here. Much smaller addressable market, needs less capital, all the big guys will be busy dealing with Germany. And then ultimately, they might look at acquisitions while they expand geographically. So that's how I got started. Really interesting. And it makes so much sense. Tell me a little bit more about your thought process when you saw this big trend coming, the deregulation of European telecoms. You started to think about, okay, I'm not going to play in a major market. I'm going to go to a place like Austria where there's not going to be as much competition. Tell me a little bit more about that thought process and how people can apply that lesson to other opportunities that they see. Sure. It's always good when you have some comps where you can look into an existing previous situation with common denominators. And the U.S. deregulated quite a few years before that with AT&T and the Mabels all being split up. So there was a lot of history lessons I could research in the U.S., and then a couple other markets. And when you looked at who's getting ready to be part of this new deregulation process and get in there, it was all the big utility companies wanting to expand, offering their existing customers just another service. So in addition to you know sending them an electricity bill, why not send them a phone bill as well? 
Plus, of course, they had access to infrastructure putting in fiber. It's pretty easy if you're already got some infrastructure in the ground to add a couple more lines versus digging up the streets and putting in new fiber lines from scratch. That was the one type of participant, cash rich, deep pockets. And then the other was multinationals, even U.S. players looking at, hey, I want to expand geographically into a new market and capture some of the growth. And looking at the competitiveness of rates, where they were at, uh, domestic calling and international calling. I mean, they were sky high. International calls started at a dollar a minute. Who would think now we're talking a couple cents at most, now making international calls, if at all, we're paying for it with Skype and WhatsApp and all those solutions out there. But back then, users were paying you know, a buck or more a minute for international calls, and they were paying 20, 30 cents a minute for domestic calls. So a pretty high revenue scenario with quite a few eyes on the market that we're trying to get into and take advantage of this market opening. And then running the numbers, it became pretty clear it would require some substantial venture capital getting into the German market just due to the size. And then I ran at a conference in San Antonio, I ran into a U.S.-based operator that has already done something similar in the Benelux countries, that's Belgium and Luxembourg, and we had dinner down there by the San Antonio River, and the idea was born, why uh, couldn't we do something similar? If I can figure out distribution and the customers, they already had all the tech expertise, so I partnered up with them, and a couple of months later, Moved to Vienna, Austria with a suitcase and an answering machine and hardly knew anybody in that town and just started from scratch and built up a company with $25 million in ARR, like you said in the intro, within 18 months. It's all possible. And it comes down to three components I figured out that are critical to this hyper-fast growth. So... That to me was one of the most compelling things when I heard you say that originally when we first connected that you had built a company from zero to 25 million in annual recurring revenue in an 18 month time frame. That blew my mind. I was like, okay, I need to interview this guy immediately and figure out what are the lessons <laughs> that come out of that. And so I'd love to hear more about that and some of the key lessons and also more of the war story, if you will, of how that process took place, because it's such a short time frame. It's such a large amount of revenue to produce so rapidly. And I have many questions about it, but I want to hear from your perspective, really what went into that and what some of the lessons were that came out of it. Absolutely. Maybe the war story first, because without the war story being positive and a success, the whole thing would have never worked. So I Got there to Austria, didn't have any license. At some point, they came out with licensing requirements, and then you had to do one thing called an interconnect agreement. That's uh, where you lease capacity from the former or soon-to-be incumbent, so from the former operator like the AT&T equivalent that got the last mile and connects into all the businesses and also in all the homes because you're not going to have 100% coverage from the start. And then you also have to connect to all the cell phone carriers, to the mobile carriers. And in the industry, it's called interconnect or interconnection agreement is what you need to sign. 
So I went over there, and of course, the former incumbent, Telecom Austria, had a genius idea like all the other incumbents in all the other countries. Why don't we set the rates so high that the competition can't make any money? And that'll keep our market share for a little longer while they appoint some regulator that's ultimately going to tell us, no, no, you can't do that. Why don't we gain time and protect market share by just making it very unattractive, setting such uncompetitive interconnection rates that you can't make a business case out of it. So I went to them, I looked at the rates, and I didn't even start arguing uh, or trying to negotiate. All my competitors, and there was a big utility company that wanted to get off the ground. There was a couple of multinationals that wanted to get off the ground. They all focused on trying to negotiate the rates down. But I figured ultimately, you know, that's going to be resolved. So why don't I focus on the technical aspects? How can we make this handshake work? And we worked out that part. Uh, then, like expected, Austria appointed a regulator that was the former professor of the Vienna University of the Economics Division. So I called them up and introduced myself and asked if I could come by for a meeting. Hey, I'll be entering the market when it opens up. Just want to say hi. And as I was sitting there in his office, Professor Otruba was his name. I said, Professor, if I were to sign this agreement today with those unattractive interconnection rates and you decide to regulate them down later, would those be retroactive for me? Would they apply for me? And he smiles and leans back in his chair and says, you're the first person to ask me that. That's pretty smart. He said, absolutely, would they apply to you? And I said, that's great. Can we just agree on one thing? Could you please not share that with any of my competitors? And he said, you got it. I left the office. Now I knew it doesn't matter what I sign. It can be a big paper loss. He's going to regulate the heck out of those excessive fees. And there will be a positive business case. So while all my competitors worried about, can we make money off of this and we can't invest until that item is resolved. I went straight ahead, went to my U.S. investors, said, we're going to get this resolved. Let's get started. So we had about a six or seven week head start over everybody else, just signing the agreement and just go with it. And that then led into the three factors that were critical to scale to that level so quickly. So even before we get into the three big factors that enabled you to scale from zero to 25 million in revenue in 18 months, I'm curious, even before that process, one of the keystone decisions that you made was to partner up with the right capital partners. How did you decide that you needed to bring somebody in and partner with them as opposed to trying to go it alone? My pockets weren't deep enough. I had just sold my interest in another business, but it for sure wasn't big enough. I mean, I was in my mid-20s back then to finance a major rollout that requires a couple million, two or three million until profitability. So I looked at either venture capital, but then I also looked at private investors in the U.S., and at that conference in San Antonio that I referenced to earlier, I met a gentleman with the name of Chuck DeHunt, and he was already in business, same industry in two other countries. And he's a former Intel executive, knows a couple other individual investors that invest into tech deals. So naturally, 
It was a good personal fit, and they brought the right thing to the table, not just capital that doesn't do anything other than deposit money in your bank account, but also some technical expertise. They had overcome some hurdles in Belgium from a technical point of view in dealing with the incumbent and so on. So I considered it a smart money, and we were growing so fast at one point that we actually almost exhausted the resources of our private investors. But luckily, I found a couple other funding options. So once you have the growth, it's pretty much the possibilities are endless. If you have good numbers and your MRR keeps growing, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% over a month, anybody will give you money at that point. I mean, I got million dollar line of credit, still losing money from the biggest bank in Austria just agreeing to run all the ACH payments through them and walking over with the floppy disk every month. That got me a $1 million line of credit unsecured. Then we needed some equipment in customer locations. Typically, lease companies like the equipment in one place and they don't like you know, a couple hundred locations all over a country. It would be tough for them to pick it up in case you default and you stop paying. Well, because the growth was so great, no problem. I was able to finance some of this customer used equipment through lease companies. And you can show the numbers. There's a lot of possibilities. Didn't have to give up any additional equity. Uh, very attractive financing terms. That's one thing I learned from Dan Pena's Castle experience. I don't know if you ever had him on the podcast. He's quite an interesting character. I haven't, but I definitely would have him on the show. I'm a fan of his work. He's a little different, to say the least, when it comes to his personality. But he taught me fearless money raising and just keep pitching and the money is out there and it just works. And so it was the perfect fit back to your question of smart capital, not just being a capital source, but also adding extreme value. And, and so talking, uh, still business partners in one deal. So uh, 22 years later, I'm still working with him and we've done some incredible things together. And so as someone in there, I think you said your early 20s when all this was happening. Is that correct? Yes. Let's see. When I started the business, 97, I was 25. So how did you convince the capital partners that as a young 25-year-old, you might have had a great idea. Obviously, it turned out to be a fantastic idea. But how do you get them to buy into that? Well, at that age, I was so fearless. It didn't occur to me that age would play a role how you could raise money. I had all my market data. I did proper research, put together a very well-researched business plan, took a couple trips over there, to speak to some actual customers, I had a stack of forms from customers that if I offered this, then they would jump on the service. So actual you know, names and signatures. I mean, it was a pretty appealing proposition for them. And I was for sure ready to be all in. That's the only thing I'm going to do. I'm not going to do three other deals at the same time. I'm going to move there. I'm going to get this baby off the ground and I'm going to be there until we cash in. And so one other question around this. So you found the capital provider and then you jumped into the market and you said your focus was around customer acquisition and business development. Is that correct? Yeah. So initially the plan was because that's what I'm really good at and that's what I enjoy. At that time, I didn't see myself as an operator. I saw myself as a sales and marketing guy. So the plan was, I'm going to run sales and marketing, we'll hire a general manager slash operator, and then I can move on to the next country and do another deal. 
and start things up and put all the bases in place and then scale and head over to the next thing. But the first guy we hired turned out to be a bad choice for hiring. And then once you grow at 30, 40, 50% a month, we just didn't have time to do another switch here, putting an operator in place. And I started to enjoy the operations part as well. So I just kept involved full time until we sold to one of the large publicated companies. I ended up buying it at that time. They were the fifth largest global telecom operator. All right. So you eventually kind of pivoted into ops, but you really started out with a focus around sales and business development. So to me, let's bring this back to some of the lessons that enabled you to scale that quickly. So you hit Austria, you have an answering machine and have a couple conversations. What were the real things that really enabled you to suddenly start to gain so much revenue so quickly? Sure. So the first thing is you got to be in a recurring revenue in a subscription type business to grow that fast. Otherwise, it would be very tough if that's all individual transactions and you got to you know, sell over and over and over. So the first appealing thing, and that already we covered that in the war story, being in a subscription type business where you make a sale once, I understood that very early on in my entrepreneurial career that this is where you want to be instead of having to sell people over and over and over and constantly look for a new audience. And since you only sign them up once, then the only thing you got to pay attention to is to retain them by managing the churn rates. And we had some of the lowest churn rates in the industry. You just got to keep the customers happy. And if your churn rate is in the 1% or 1.5%, it's pretty typical in telecoms and for internet subscriptions. At 1% a month, you got, what, an eight-year lifetime, which is pretty long. So your CAC versus LTV becomes very, very attractive because you spend so little acquiring the customer versus what your lifetime value is. So that's the first bucket. And then the second one, that was the major ingredient for being able to scale this quickly. And that's, I figured out, a sales and marketing strategy that didn't have a lot of fixed expenses. So what do I mean by that? We spent $0 in advertising. We focused all our efforts since it was a completely blue ocean and hardly any competition yet, at least for the first couple of weeks. And then they were still pretty slow afterwards. We hired a telemarketing department that would set up appointments. And then we hired a commission-based sales team and we had the ultimate recruiting machine set up constantly, new influx of commission-based salespeople. Six to eight out of 10 didn't make it past the first couple of weeks. They lost interest, but if you feed in enough, and always between two and four of every 10 you feed in, ultimately you got a decent-sized team that's doing good at sales. And having a no-cap commission plan is probably what most companies uh, don't understand. They always like to cap commissions just at levels of C-level compensation. Horrible would be if a salesperson makes more than the CEO. Well, guess what? If I'm an owner in the business, I'll write those checks all day long. If they're making more money than I do, guess what? I'm creating such a big enterprise value that I'm going to cash in one day. So we never had any caps. All our competition were all on maximum compensation plans. 
So with that ultimate recruiting machine where we constantly onboard new people, we train them, they didn't have to do any prospecting or lead gen. At that point, nobody even knew the term SDR, sales development reps, but it's kind of what we did. Called it the telemarketing department, pre-qualifying leads and setting up appointments and then just sending the salespeople there. And then we also deployed a partner strategy. Now, at that time uh, in Austria, there was no affiliate marketing or anything, but there was a couple big manufacturers of phone equipment. Siemens was one, Ericsson was the other, and the third one was Philips. So I started to call all of them up and make appointments and can we talk about a distribution deal selling our service? It's exactly your audience that's already buying from you. And all three said, well, that's very nice. I remember Siemens was the best. They said, that's very nice, young man. But our biggest customer is Telecom Austria, and there's no way we're going to sell something that could prevent us or could jeopardize our relationship with Telecom Austria. So not going to happen. Well, since I don't accept a no until somebody tells me stop calling, go away, I just kept entertaining them, buying them lunch, and keep following up until I ultimately got a yes, and I was able to have both Siemens, Ericsson, and Philips, so the three major phone equipment manufacturers, all sell our service in exchange for a commission. And it was a great third-party distribution channel. I only needed one manager to manage all three accounts. Uh, so the numbers worked great and was a fantastic lead gen uh, source. So if you think out of the box and you're able to have a combination of commission-based salespeople that you only pay when they generate revenues, and that, of course, could be affiliates, influencers, any kind of promoter. Podcasters are a great source. They have an audience. And that combined with some more traditional players, even though they initially told me, no, we're never going to do that, it was still you know, very possible to get them on board and work out a distribution deal. And that was the biggest, if we didn't have that piece, we would have never scaled to 25 million in the ARR in 18 months. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. 
I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. And just as a clarification point, the people that you're ultimately selling to in this instance, are you selling to end-user consumers of telephone services? Is that kind of who the ultimate customer was that you're going after? It was B2B, so business users. So all business users, anything from a small business, you know, with a handful of employees, all the way, the biggest customer we were able to land was the biggest hospital in Austria, AKH, and it was thousands of phone lines. And it was incredible. The commission check, I still remember, and that gave a huge push. So the commission check of the salesperson landing that account was bigger than my annual startup salary for the year. And I made a big deal out of it, physically writing a check and handing it to him at a sales meeting so everybody would see it. Here's this fat big check here. And that gave us a huge push. I mean, everybody else wanted to get those big checks. It was hugely motivational. And so I just want to summarize this and make sure that I understand it. The strategy really revolved around a couple key pieces. One was having a sales engine that was essentially focused around low to no fixed costs, performance-based sales, high commissions, uncapped commissions, and paying people for the results they create, but not necessarily having a lot of salary or fixed advertising expenses. And that was combined with a partnership or joint venture-based strategy where you then approached some of these big producers and providers of phone equipment and things like that and said, hey, you have all these customer relationships. We'd like to partner up with you and use you as a distribution channel for our telecom service. Is that the other component as well? You got it. Yeah. And even the performance-based part, these were the main pieces I picked up from Jay Abraham back then in the late 90s at his X Factor program. I mean, that stuff works extremely well. And so the JV deals that you were setting up with the big telecom infrastructure producers, the phone providers and so forth, were those the same kind of structure where it was they get a piece of the deal, it's nothing upfront, pay performance, and they get a cut of everything that they sell through their channel? Exactly. And here's how I got it over the finish line. It was the residual piece that it's a recurring commission. All they do is do an intro once to our sales team. Our sales team takes care of the rest, but yet they get this ongoing commission check or royalty, and that looked very appealing. Once they ran the numbers, uh, they figured this can be actually more substantial if we got a lot of customers to take us up on that. Uh, That could be more lucrative than selling the equipment to the former incumbent. So they figured, I mean, first they kept it completely under the radar. Then, of course, they tried to get something similar out of the incumbent. Telecom Austria said, out of, uh, you're out of your mind. Why would we pay you anything? We anyways got the major market share. And then ultimately, once I had Ericsson and Philips, the other two, they didn't have to do anything anymore because Telecom Austria would have been 
without any equipment source if they were eliminating all three from their vendor list. So at that point, you know, I played the cards well that they would all do it. And then there was no more risk for any vendor uh, that Telecomastria might stop buying equipment from them. And out of the two channels that you cultivated, the in-house performance-based sales team and the joint ventures that you structured, which one of those ultimately produced more of the revenue? Well, initially, because we didn't start with the third-party channels, with the partnership channels, until like seven or eight months in. So initially, we started out with 100% from the direct channels, but then it became probably a, I would say, 60-40, 60% direct, 40% indirect. But we still made the indirect channels just the lead channel source and made the direct channel close them with a little bit lower commission structure since they were kind of served on a silver plate. But we still won with the interaction of the sales rep establishing a relationship. We saw that as a competitive advantage if we maintain that relationship versus some third party. That totally makes sense. And that was actually my next question is, how did you structure the differentiation between lead generation and appointment setting and ultimately the sales team? How did you set up each of those pieces and how did you differentiate between the two of them? Yeah. So when we had to do outbound in the early days before the inbound leads came in through the partnerships, we started you know, buying business lists and just picking up the phones and call them as a telemarketing department. And there as well, I mean, you would burn most people that are not born telemarketers, you burn them out after a few months. I mean, your retention time is maybe four to six months on average before people get burned out being on the phone the whole day. That's another thing I learned from uh, Jay. You know, you just got to have a recruiting process, constantly feeding new people that when one leaves, you feed the next person in. And then for overflow, we did hire a couple of third-party outsourced agencies. The quality wasn't as good because we didn't have full control, but it was still better than not having any outsourcers generating appointments as well. And when you got a blue ocean with an attractive offer, it's pretty easy to get customers to look at it. Now, of course, it's a lot easier with Zoom and all the virtual opportunities we have back then. Everything was still mostly in person. You had to show up at the customer side, so you had to consider travel time. One requirement was to schedule them geographically convenient for the salespeople, so they're not running 30 miles in between appointments. And the good ones, three appointments in the morning, three appointments in the afternoon, and close 20 to 25% of the leads, and they made a fantastic living. Then with the inbound leads once we had those partner channels then of course it just becomes a scheduling issue you don't need a telemarketer anymore you can just distribute the lead you could even have the salesperson schedule the appointment you know to sign the paperwork introduce themselves and then have ongoing retention calls so the way that you split that out when you're calling telemarketing was essentially outbound lead gen and you started out with just cold outbound lead gen business development list company list that kind of thing And then as you started to set these partnerships up, that really became a source of warm lead flow. And then independent of the lead generating team and the inbound lead flow from JV partners, you also then had a true sales force that was working and closing the leads that were coming in. They weren't doing the prospecting themselves. Is that a correct characterization of it? Yes, except if they had relationships with any potential prospect out of prior business dealings before they joined us, of course, we would let them work on their own leads, but they weren't required to work on any cold leads. 
And salespeople laughed at that there's a separate, I mean, now you would call it SDR team that generates a demand. And they, of course, got paid bonuses if they meet uh, certain milestones. You got to keep them happy. And you need a very, very good leader or manager for that department that can motivate them because, you know, it kind of sucks picking up the phone the whole day, calling up people that don't want to talk to you. It's not the most intriguing job in the world, but with the right leader that keeps the team happy, it can turn into a fun department and really produce uh, good results. And how did you think about the compensation for the SDR, the sales development lead generation team versus the sales team? Great question. That's where the experience of my smart money investor that has already experimented in uh, Belgium and Luxembourg with a similar concept that came handy. And I didn't even think about it. I thought of paying a residual commission X percent off of monthly billings. But they realized if you would advance the first year as like a bigger payment over the first months or two, but it reduces the margin it really helps kickstart a new salesperson and motivate them that they see money quickly. And since the churn rates are so low, there isn't a whole lot of risk paying out a first-year commission in the first 30 or 60 days. And of course, you have a clawback built in. But that made a big difference. So I had the experience of somebody that had already tweaked it, A-B tested several different models, and paying more the first year can work extremely well. And then reducing it for retention purposes. And of course, if you're able to offer any residual commission to a performance-based sales expert, you're in a different bucket. You're so much more attractive as a product owner, attracting the right talent if it's a residual commission versus a one-time where they have to constantly bring new business and not get anything off of the retention. Really smart. So it seems like across the board, both with your JV partners and with the salespeople that you brought on board, you were rather generous in terms of both uncapping the commissions, having the residuals stick around, potentially, I don't know, but indefinitely, and also giving them a kind of an upfront bang when they were to close their lead so they could really start to see some cash on the front of the deals as well. Is that correct? That's correct. And then the only thing you got to keep in mind, especially if you're thinking about exiting one day, you never want to have lifetime liabilities on your books for anything, not for lifetime subscriptions, not for lifetime deals, not for lifetime commissions. So the wording we used is that we have a right to buy them out from the contract for, I think we had 12 or 24 months of additional commissions and we could buy them out at the end. That alone was enough to satisfy any potential acquirer that went through the due diligence. If he would have had lifetime commission, that would have been a problem with most publicly traded companies. They don't touch deals that have lifetime liabilities. Got it. That's a great distinction point. Really, really insightful. And one other piece that I want to make sure I have clarity around is I think I understand the compensation structure you use for the salespeople. What compensation structure were you using for the lead generators? Did they have the same exact commissions? Was it a split? So let's say I'm a lead generator and you're a salesperson. I generate uh-huh. Oliver Inc. And then I send it over to you and you close it. How are we each compensated in that case? We compensated the uh, lead generators at a fixed success fee per appointment they set beyond a basic quota. Let's say you got a set 
four meetings a day. That's part of your fixed compensation because if you're a lead generator, you get a salary of a couple of grand a month. So that requires the first four appointments a day or three or whatever the number is. You don't get any bonus and you can do it monthly as well or weekly. But then any production beyond that, you get 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks per appointment. And we found it's good to keep the lead generators focused on just making sure the appointment sticks, they can cancel. If it's a no-show, that'll get retracted from the bonus. But they shouldn't be worried about, can the salesperson close it? All they should worry about, having enough appointments for the salespeople geographically aligned within the criteria we gave them, like within 15 or 20 minutes driving distance max. And these are the sizes of companies. If it's not bucket, it qualifies for the bonus. Very smart. That makes total sense. So the lead generators, they had a salary, I'm assuming, some, yeah. uh, and then they had kind of a fixed component on top of that, that for everything over their quota that was based in the salary, then they would get additional compensation. That makes a lot right. of sense. And, and at that time, I mean, the going rate for a SDR in that market was 2500 to 3000 a month, probably double in today's dollars. But back then, that's what it was. And with a bonus structure, I mean, the well-performing SDRs could make double versus, you know, salespeople. We had quite a few that were in the six figures and the biggest checks we wrote were six figures in a single month brought in big contracts. So obviously a salesperson is a lot higher compensated than an SDR. That makes sense. Are there any other components of your distribution strategy that we haven't touched on or explored a little bit? Well, not distribution, but the third component, I mean, it's not enough if you just got all these revenues coming in. It's really the operations part. And that's what I used to like the least out of everything. I'd much generate new business instead of worrying about fulfillment. But then when we came into the dilemma that the guy we hired, the GM, didn't work out and we were growing so rapidly, I mean, I had no choice, but I had to figure this out. And it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Because I didn't want to spend the majority of my time on ops. I wanted to spend it on generating new business. So what did I do is I said to myself, if you can figure out a really smart processes and systemize everything and have good SOPs, standard operating procedures in place, then I'll have to spend very little time on this. And Michael Gerber's email helped me tremendously, you know, working on the business, not in the business. So I wrote that out, asked fast as I could, not having to worry about dealing with stuff that I didn't want to deal with and didn't really enjoy doing. And it all starts with, you know, having a great team. If you have a management team that you can delegate stuff to, I had a weekly one-on-one meeting with all my direct reports and a one hour a week joint management meeting with all the direct reports on the conference room. And that was it. So I had 85, 90% of my time still I could spend on sales and marketing, what I truly enjoyed. And I had a customer service manager that would worry about customer service. I had a a chief technical officer or technical director that would keep the phone calls and everything running and all the IT and all the invoicing. Once I had all the SOPs in place, an hour a week per department was completely sufficient to manage. The more time you spend early on, putting the right structure in place with the right people and systemizing things, the more you can take yourself out of fulfillment and the more you can spend your time on other things that you enjoy more. 
That makes total sense. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of Michael Gerber. He's actually a previous guest on the show as well. And so that's a great piece of advice. And just making sure that I understand these three key components that really helped you rapidly scale this company from zero to 25 million in such a short period of time. The first is recurring revenue, having a business model that's based on recurring revenue, keeping your churn rates low, et cetera. The second component is having efficient distribution. And so your strategy really revolves around leveraging variable comp performance-based sales, splitting out the sales and the lead generation functions. And then the third component is systems, processes, and what I would call operational excellence. Is that a correct look at the three big pillars that you see as necessary components of scaling something that rapidly? You got it. Once you got those three pillars mastered, you can grow as fast as your market will allow. And that's a really key point too that can get missed a lot of the time. What you just said is you can grow as fast as the market will allow you to grow. The interesting thing about your journey is that you picked an incredible opportunity. You found this time when this market was getting deregulated. But one of the cornerstones of building a really massive company is that you have to be at least in an industry or vertical or segment where there is an opportunity for that growth to happen in the first place. That is correct. And I've been in industries where it looked like a growth market, but it's dominated by a couple large reputable players. And the problem there is if all the buyers, there's an old saying, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM. If you're in that kind of space where a lot of the business buyers just like to buy from the big guys because they can lose their job over switching vendors, that is a limiting factor in growth if you've got a market that operates like that. Even though the top-line growth numbers are growing, you've got to really dive in. How easy is it to get somebody to shift? Do you have any other advice or suggestions or guidance around how to position yourself into the industries that have the biggest potential for growth and scale? I think everything related platforms has a huge future. That's the new kind of middleman, just an electronic version. I think we're still in the very early stages. I'm actually working on a deal with Roland Fraser on a platform deal. Uh, we'll come out with some pretty exciting things in the next couple of weeks to next couple of months. So I think there's a lot of potential if you analyze you know, what's happening in the platform world, marketplaces, connecting multi-sites, through automation, through a central marketplace, you know, uh, even though Airbnb isn't very hot right now and Uber, but that's the kind of platforms that can be applied in a lot of cases where it's not being transacted that way yet. And I see some huge growth opportunities in that space. And for listeners who want to start implementing some of the advice that you've shared today, what would be one action step or piece of homework that you would give them to begin their journey of scaling their company? I would first spend time on research. Is it a recurring revenue situation? If not, how can you turn it into a recurring revenue slash subscription revenue scenario? That would be my starting point. I would look at the general growth into a growing market and call up 100 potential customers first before you get into the space, talk to them pick their brains, don't worry about NDAs, just share your idea, see what kind of feedback you get, and then go for it. And be fearless in this current COVID environment. I've been able to connect with people that last year wouldn't have any time. Now they're all sitting at home bored, doing Zoom meetings and jumping on calls. 
So right now is a great time to position yourself for the next upcoming boom. And some of the best companies were built during major downturns. And so right now, I think is the best time to position yourself for the future. And that's another thing that we didn't even really dig into. But another great lesson that comes out of your story is this importance on just having an absolutely fearless approach to sales and business development. That is correct. And over time, obviously, as I got more experienced and wiser, that has gone away. But I'm always trying to remind myself, be as fearless as you were in your mid-20s. Great advice. And so, Oliver, where can listeners who want to learn more or connect with you find you and your current work online? Yeah, so best is if you want to connect with me on Facebook, Oliver Schmalholtz on Facebook. That's S-C-H-M-A-L-H-O-L-Z like Zebra. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. And looking forward to connecting with your listeners. And has been a terrific 45, 50 minute video, Matt. Thanks again for having me on your show. And great podcast. Really enjoyed myself listening to it in the car. And Thanks so much for having me on as a guest. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.